Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and if you one of those listeners who loves the episodes where we go behind the curtain in television, well, you are going to love this week and next because, boy, we do that in spades. My guest this week and next is Maureen Ryan. She is a TV critic. She was the chief TV critic for the Huffington Post for many years for the Chicago Tribune, also for Variety, and currently she is the contributing editor of television for Vanity Fair. She wrote a great book recently called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. And it really goes behind the scenes and takes you into writers' rooms of various shows. It deals with harassment. It deals with bias. It deals with very toxic shows. And she also goes into shows that are very well run. So it's not like every show is terrible. Anyway, we have an awful lot to talk about, and we begin right now. Maureen Ryan, my guest this week and next on Hollywood and Levine. Well, I usually wonder as I read a book like this, what compels a person to write a book like this, but it's very clear because you talk on many occasions in the book about how as somebody who loves television, you are very sad by the events and the way the industry has turned kind of toxic in many regards. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's the it's the disappointment of like when so, it's it's just the same as in a relationship when somebody disappoints you, and you know I don't know I I I wouldn't ever want anyone to whether they're a viewer or aspire to be in the industry. I hope it comes through that I'm I'm not you know advocating for total cynicism because you know because I know you can like you, like there are so many people in the industry who it wouldn't occur to them to behave in these ways, you know? And so I think that was one of the points of doing it is like, I've known a number of people who have found success without 
damaging other people on a regular basis, whether it's financially, psychologically, or even physically. Like it's possible to have a career. I knew from my travels in the industry, it's very possible to have a career. And of course, everyone faces setbacks. Everyone has issues, whatever. But like, it's possible to have a career and just be a person who ascribes to sort of common sense standards of decent behavior. And it just kind of made me mad that so many people in the industry, and I wonder if you came across this a lot, they would um, they would act like someone behaving in a consistently damaging, toxic way or bullying way or awful way was like an act of nature, like a tornado. Well, we couldn't help the tornado came through town. Yeah, you can't actually help it if a tornado whips through your town. You can actually, somebody at the studio or the network could help it if, you know, an individual was, like, consistently unwilling to change their negative behavior. You know, it's like I just hate it being presented as, like, this inevitable thing when I know that it's not. Yeah, there's pretty much, um, eh, we all talk. Okay, you know, uh, all of the producers and writers, you know, we all talk amongst ourselves and we know of this behavior and we know of the people. And we also try our best to avoid them. If we can. It's so crazy that like people think they're going to get away with this. There was one high profile actor on an HBO show a few years ago where, um, you know, everyone else in the cat, I'm not going to say who it is because I do not want to get threatened with a lawsuit. That person was like, the character was, was bounced off the show. And I have not seen that actor pop up a lot. And, and it's the same with journalists too. Part, part of the reason, like, I would rather, I don't want to help the careers of anyone who's a negative influence on others in the industry or just a, a sort of like a malign presence and I, I sort of feel bad that, like, in the press, we're often the last to know. You know, you 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 all often know, people in the industry often know, but all too often in the press, we just are kind of operating as viewers, especially as, you know, it's weird because I do come at this from a place where I was like, my job title was TV critic for a long time. That's how, that was what the title I had mean that. And so... So many of us, and, and and we've gone to dinner with you know my, you know the 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 crowd from t- the TCA press tour and stuff. We're enthusiasts, and it's not that we won't ding something that's bad or talk about a trend that's bad, but we came from this place of you know considered enthusiasm, if you will, and it's really kind of a drag that I feel like amongst audiences and even amongst certain aspects of the press or the critics. I don't know if taking advantage is the right word, but like we give these properties and these people, these companies, the benefit of the doubt. And now I, I kind of regret, you know, blanketly giving certain entities the, the benefit of the doubt, because I think, you know, for far too long, abuse of power was just regarded at like the higher, some the, the higher status somebody had, abuse of power was just kind of considered a perk. Am I, do you, I don't know, am I crazy for thinking that? No, I think that's true. I mean, it's also such a subjective industry. Yeah. And look, the bottom line is, if you are a 
actor, studio head, writer, whatever, who is making money for the machine, then the machine tends to look the other way. Right. Exactly. Now, I don't know if if it's unique to Hollywood. I yeah. mean, if you talk to people in the advertising industry or in an insurance industry, the insurance right. industry may say, yeah, this guy is just a total asshole, but he's our number one salesman, so we put up with it. But it does seem to be prevalent, it seems like, in the entertainment industry, yeah. that horrible behavior is tolerated more right. than than other places. And it's all oh, because right. of profit. Yeah. Completely. And I mean... That I actually have read a very dry but actually quite factually interesting study from the EEOC from 2016, you know, pre-Me Too, where it basically lists, if you go on the EEOC website, I think you can find it if you dig around, it lists what are the traits that lead to a negative or biased or harassing workplace. And one of them is someone is regarded as a star performer, you know, and so that absolutely happens in any industry where someone is regarded as a rainmaker or some kind of revenue generator and so forth. Um, but I think what what's unique about Hollywood, there's a couple things that's, you know, I, I live out here in the Midwest, so I'm always having to explain like, well, you know, I had a manager when I worked in plumbing. Look, it absolutely can happen anywhere. But the difference in Hollywood is that I don't think there's a lot of industries where, you know, even if you are a Wall Street plutocrat, your assistant is making 300K a year. You know what I mean? Like in Hollywood, you can have someone who's worth $50 million pulling 14 hour days next to someone who is basically not even or barely making minimum wage. And, you know, in LA living on a, what is a very paltry wage for that industry. Hence the writer's guild strike. Hence the, the strike. I mean, that's what people don't understand is how often even working people established people how much development is done for free how many polishes and rewrites are done for free and how much you know like the vast majority of people in the industry are not do not have independent wealth to where they could just be done working forever tomorrow that's just not my experience with most people in the industry and so these vast disparities in wealth um, and power are incredibly like it's ripe for exploitation and and that's something i've actually had to tell you know I, I i'm glad i brought it up in the book that you know even fans of something you know don't attack the story editor online don't 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 yell at the composer for the film because you didn't like how this character was killed off like those people don't have power there are very few people on a film set or in charge of a motion picture, or in charge of a TV show that have real actual power. And it's very strange because I think people have this idea of Hollywood as like a bunch of crunchy liberal granola eaters, like all holding hands and like, you know, being in a sharing circle. And I'm like, well, I don't know what people's politics are. They are kind of all over the map in my experience, but it's really interesting that just in terms of workplaces, it's a series of autocracies, really. You know, you have the showrunners who, you know, and the executives who oversee the shows, and they should have power. I'm not saying they shouldn't have power, 
but like all too often, most of the other people have no power, little to no power. And the big thing that is different is that like, if you are working for a grocery store chain in Omaha and you have a terrible boss and you like, are like, I, I got to get out of this. And then you go work for a grocery, you want to go work for a grocery store chain in um, Texas, you can. But Hollywood is such a small, tightly knit community that I've often come across people who are no longer working or had long periods without working. And it was over lies that were told about them or, you know, vindictive, never hire this person again. You'll never eat lunch in this town again behavior. And the person in question actually didn't do anything wrong. They just kind of crossed the wrong person. And so the power dynamics are so messed up. And I actually think, you know, you can make a comparison with Hollywood. You can make the comparison to the Catholic Church, to other faith traditions where there have been scandals, to, you know, other creative fields where there have been scandals, you know, fashion, um, fine art, things like that. And the commonality is, well, this person is regarded as, as having special access to something. And, and, you know, kind of that, the rainmaker, but it, but they can write a script. Right. Or they can give a performance. Right. Or so as a, a result of that, they get a free pass. As a result on, of that. On their behavior. On their behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, I don't think that should be a thing. I think common humane decency should be common humane decency. And, you know, I oh, well, that person has special access to the divine or to God or special access to, you know, some kind of revelation or some kind of creative whatever. I, I don't think that that means that that person gets to treat other human beings however they want. That's just. I also think that it's a sign of insecurity, that it's it's a person exerting his power because he absolutely can. Oh, completely. And that and, and where where I feel like my focus is starting to go, like before we started recording, I was saying to you that, you know, I, you know, on all my inboxes and social media and elsewhere, people are like, now do this person and now do that person. And I just, I don't like abuse of power is such a fact of like the book is about how abuse of power has been enshrined as a perk of being high on the food chain in Hollywood. And I don't like, I don't know how many more, more stories that like, it, doesn't it start to feel like I'm telling the same story over and over again? And, and right now, to be honest with you, I don't know how to make this super compelling, but like, if there's misconduct, there's the person making the choice to engage in this misconduct, but there's the studio, there's the network, there's the executives that oversee the whole thing. Oh, the enablers. They're the enablers, and they're not the ones that will cause people to click on the story because no one knows their names. You know what I mean? So I'm much more focused right now on, you know, it can feel like Groundhog Day to do these stories because it's the same syndromes over and over again. People looking the other way. Oh, golly, we didn't know when I'm like, come on, man. I've been hearing about this dude for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, we have a grapevine. You know, I hear about what's going on at Warner Brothers, and I'm sitting at Paramount. Right. So, yeah, the executives at Warner executives. Brothers 
Sure yeah. as hell know what's going on. Exactly. Oh, God. And then the thing is, how many times is it? I like I often go through this pantomime of, you know, I, you know, I'm in talks with the studio. I've sent over the questions to this person, their reps in the studio. It's like, oh, we we just launched an HR investigation. And golly gee, Willikers, we just found that there are problems on this set. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Um, Have you ever so- had a situation where you know, you've established a relationship with, say, a showrunner, and you have a decent relationship with him, and then you find out that he is this monster. Oh, yeah. More more times than I wish I could. How does that affect your relationships with these people? Do you cut it off, or what do you do? That's a great question. I mean, you know, honestly... It's it's very painful. And, you know, like anyone else in that situation, I sit there and I look for signs I should have seen. But, you know, one of the things that I think people are starting to grasp now, someone can present one face to you and a different face and a different pattern of behavior to other people. Because, you know, I get this less now than I used to. Well, he was always nice to me. I'm like, dude, someone who wants good press coverage for their show they're going to be pretty nice to the press. And so it feels it's upsetting. I mean, for if, if nothing else, I just stop writing about the show. If I ever wrote about it, I'm like, I sort of like clear the decks um, of, of like ever wanting to write about it. There was one showrunner in particular who um, it's the weirdest thing. I wrote about his show going into syndication. So this is years ago. Like this is probably 15, 20 years ago. And it was a cult show. I super loved it. And I was like, I'll interview some people from the show. He later believed that in a different blog post that I had put something in that blog post that he had meant to be off the record. I went back and looked at my transcript. I don't think it was, but there's a way to bring that up to me. Like, Hey, you know what? Bring it. That's, you know, like, Hey, no, I thought this like, this and to be honest what he could have just said is like look i thought that part of our talk was off the record i may not have been clear enough about that could you take that off the internet you know or whatever like right because mm-hmm. you know if it was going to mess up a future job prospect for him or some kind of business relationship like i don't know like i i don't know what i would have done but I, like there's a way to come at someone he had his assistant call me and screamed at me you know, I'm a bad journalist, I'm a bad person, I'm a liar, this, that, and the other. And again, this is for a show that was off the air that had finally hit syndication. And I was like, dude, I did you a favor. This is not like CSI Miami. This is a minor show that I was giving some love to. And I didn't need to do that. And I, you're, so it's very weird in those circumstances because I'm like listening to this dude going, does he think I work for him? I don't have to put up with that, you know, like, so I was like, okay, we'll have a great day. I was like, I, that's the weird thing is like some people get into their own bubble of power so much that they think that you will never, that you're always going to be on their side. So I really honestly made a swerve into doing, I had always done a lot of reporting on sort of like inclusion issues and inclusion efforts and that kind of thing and diversity. Um, 
But I swerved more into the Me Too of it all because I think there have never been enough reporters who reported on the industry rigorously. I mean, I think, to be clear, a lot of us in the media took on a second job of being kind of misconduct reporters when we already had pretty demanding, you know, primary jobs. So I am incredibly proud of how the completely on fire profession of media, like how we all like kind of rose to the occasion. That said, um, the stories that I work on, the book that I worked on took, you know, two, three years. Um, the stories I work on can often take up to six months, if not a year. So it's really hard to do nuanced, in-depth coverage of that kind. And part of it was to, I don't know if the word is make up for, but I felt that I had, I felt that I had sort of given the industry as a whole a free pass. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I can't like go back and yell at my, I don't, I don't think it's fair to go back and yell at like 2012 Mo. I don't, I was just trying to do my job but what critics and reporters write about films and tv shows can have an effect on the reputation of those shows and the reputations of the people who made them so part of the reason i wrote the book actually was i want to add to those discourses around certain shows and you know for some of the shows i wrote about i had interviewed those people in the past and uh those were shall we say, challenging, <laughs> challenging re-interviews, if you will. You wrote about Lost. And uh, the excerpt from your book was printed in Vanity Fair. Yeah. And it went viral. And, uh, and I have to tell you that I have a, a good friend who was one of the writers at Lost that first season Mm -hmm. And I asked him about the article, as did everybody who knew him. <laughs> yeah. And and God bless you, Mo. He said, nope, this is totally accurate. It's like er everything she said was, yep, yep, that's, yep, that's exactly the way yeah. it happened. So yeah. congratulations I mean, on that. Thank you. I mean, with a number of different aspects of the book, I've had things land in my inbox that, Let's just say I didn't, I thought my reporting was pretty solid the day the book come out, came out. I've had no reason to doubt it. And honestly, that, you know, I, I really agonized over a few different chapters in the book. And that, like, I agonized over the whole book because it was my first book and you've written books. And I'm sitting there going, why does anyone do this? This was so hard. But aside from the fact that, you know, I got threatening letters from some people's lawyers, um, that wasn't super fun. Even without that, I would have been incredibly hard on myself because, you know, what your friend thought, like what people in the, like, I want the people reading the book and also the people in the community of writers, artists, creators, actors, all of the people in the industry that I know, I didn't want them to feel that I'd been, you know, lacking thoroughness, lacking nuance, lacking clarity. And like, I really, it's the expectations I had for myself around all that, a lot of it had to do with the people I respect most in the industry. I hope they read this. And I hope that people as in, in general understand that I'm doing, I am doing this from a place of love, really. I mean, I feel like 
a hit piece would be like someone like the, the real life equivalent would be someone just walking up to you and like punching you in the face. This was not that. I hope this was more like a doctor saying, you know, you need to have an operation and there's going to be a significant recovery period. And you're going to experience pain. You're going to have to do physical therapy, but it's to make you better. It's to make your life better. And that's, I was trying to go at it as that kind of surgeon, if you will, of like, it's painful for me to go back and look at the history of some of the shows that I write about because I feel like I am, you know, pulling the curtain back on some things that are really shocking, but I did it for a reason. You know, there's certain things I do know about the industry where I'm like, or people within the industry where, you know, there are differing reasons that I do or don't go into, into depth on a certain production or movie or show or whatever. And one of them is sometimes, you know, was this just a one-off thing? And it depends what it was, of course. You know, are enough sources willing to come forward? Do I have the corroboration that would protect me from a defamation suit? Like, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And really, everything that made the cut in the book, I was trying to illuminate this idea that I do understand that Me Too and everything that's happened since 2017 in the industry is important. I'm not making the argument that it didn't change things. I think it did. But we're just still at the beginning of that change because, you know, you've been in the industry for some time. Like, what's baked into the industry is still kind of baked in. It's not like, you know, there's no misconduct or abuse or harassment or toxic work environments. I mean, I just before coming on this podcast, I wrote read about NHR investigation and, and the show in question is now ending. Um, it sounds like, and those two things are maybe connected. Yeah. You know, when I think about you doing these interviews, since you weren't in the writing rooms themselves, but you had to talk to all of the people and, uh, you know, get confirmation and all like that. You're the Jack Smith of television. I hope. I mean, it, I'm very conscious of the fact in every workplace I ha I wasn't there, you know, like, and so the danger with this book in particular was I had a very specific deadline. And Ken, I got to tell you, like really early on, I was like, I did not give myself enough time because if you're going to report on a workplace, you have to feel like you have enough to where people won't say, well, that was just like very superficial. You didn't, you know, understand this dynamic or you didn't really go into that, that part of it. So there was even stuff that just for sheer space reasons we had to cut. And by the way, the manuscript I gave my editor was a lot longer than what I agreed to give her. <laughs> so she was very patient with me, but like, it matters to me to to get it right, to feel like I was thorough, to feel like I try to stay away from the word fair because what's fair to me might be different than what seems fair to you. I tried to, like, what I went for was thorough, nuanced, and clear. You know, there are times in the book where I just say something, it's my opinion, and I state it outright. You yeah, know? you state that it's your opinion. Yes, it's, you do. Like, you know, I was saying that in another in an interview with um with someone. I said basically, like I, I treated it. Eventually, I realized I I I really struggled with how much for how much I should be a character in the book. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't want it to be overkill, but the fact is, I did write about lost a lot. 
I did talk to those showrunners a lot in the back in the day. Like I like I where it seemed relevant, I wanted to put my opinion in, but it was sort of like part of a buffet. Here's some reporting, here are some stats, here are some sources and experts, here are some relevant contextual information about the industry, and here's my opinion. And maybe my opinion is not relevant, but to you or so, so to certain people, but all of it together, I hope, paints a picture of more than just, oh, she just doesn't like television or she hates Hollywood. I mean, I don't. Okay, there's part one with Maureen Ryan. Again, the book is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Next week, more about the inner workings of the television industry, and we get into the shows that are well-run. So it's kind of a hopeful episode in parts. Anyway, uh, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Would you like to get in touch with me? Easy to do. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That is my email address, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. I'm also available on Instagram, where you can see some of my cartoons. And again, come back next week for part two with Maureen Ryan, right here on Hollywood and Levine.